2: I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
1: Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa and Julia Borston. Today, our first guest says Robinhood is, quote, uninvestable as a number of big funds cash out their holdings after yesterday's sudden rally. We're going to go under the hood on this week's volatility. Then Etsy getting hurt in today's trade. Morgan Stanley, though, is turning bullish. The analyst behind that call is going to join us this hour. And later, Warner Brothers chairman and CEO Ann Sarnoff is with Julia, and she'll wade into the streamers versus stars controversy, Dee.
3: And Carl, it's an all-time high for the NASDAQ, but a tale of red Riding hood this morning. Robinhood shares, they're plunging after the company announced that some existing shareholders, think venture capital firms with big holdings in the company, would sell almost 98 million shares through convertible notes. There was a big difference here from the meme stock sales we have seen over the last few months, though, like AMC. Robinhood will not get any proceeds from the transaction. And while CEO of Vlad Tenev championed retail traders during that IPO last week, big institutions like Andreessen Horowitz, NEA and Ribbit Capital, they're the ones cashing in on yesterday's surge. And Carl, they're also some of the names who rescued Robinhood earlier this year during one of its most controversial moments.
1: Uh, yeah, speaking, there's a lot of controversy around the name, obviously. Our next guest, in fact, just initiated uh, Robinhood at Peer Perform in a note titled Why Robinhood is Uninvestable Right Now. Warning clients, don't buy the stock. Wolf's research, uh, Stephen Schuback joins us today. Stephen, good morning. Good to have you. Stephen, do I have you?
4: Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me?
1: Good to see you. Yes, I got you. Um, Your note's interesting, uh, implying a downside about 36%, but you say it's an awfully tough short as well. Can you just lay out the thesis?
4: Yeah, sure. So look, why it's such a difficult short really boils down to the fact that the float's incredibly small in relation to the overall market cap. The cost to borrow is incredibly high, and we are incredibly sensitive to the meme finance mania that we're seeing across a bunch of different names. Our own quant team publishes a retail screen where they look at the names that are getting the most traffic on Reddit. These tend to be risky longs or shorts, just given outsized volatility. And hood is a clear number one over the last few sessions, not surprisingly. So I think we just have to be a little bit sensitive to that. We tried to outline the fundamental case as part of the note. And based on the fundamentals, the bull case, you can underwrite something as high as 100. The bear case, if you contemplate the real regulatory risks and a worst case scenario where PFOP is banned, it could be as low as 15. And we're shaking out somewhere in between, but we're mindful that the valuation outcomes are you know, pretty extreme. You can drive a truck through that range. So we just have to be mindful of some of those sensitivities when we think about what sort of rating we want to uh, ultimately publish.
1: Right. And and you're framing it in in a series of questions about uh, the business model and the industry that are, I guess, really unanswerable right now. Namely, uh, account growth, ARPU, you talk about what is the regulatory picture for payment for order flow? Uh, What's the new normal for retail engagement? I mean, those don't sound like questions that are going to get answered in the next couple of quarters.
4: No, that's exactly right. It is going to take some time for that to ultimately play out. But we do know, Gary Gensler was on your program just a few weeks ago, talking about the fact that trading is not free. They're going to be scrutinizing payment for order flow quite closely. So I think as investors contemplate, you know, some of the optimism around Robinhood potentially being able to build all these additional bells and whistles, being able to expand internationally, being able to launch some sort of digital wallet and compete with the squares and PayPals of the world, that's what gets some of the bullish fintech investors really excited but you also have to be mindful of the risks, and the regulatory risks here are pretty acute. And I'd also note on a near-term basis, activity levels in the third quarter had declined dramatically. App downloads for Robinhood, I think, are tracking 80% lower versus the year-to-date pace. So it is one of the top apps. It has some of the most engaged active users on their platform, but you have to be mindful that there are some emerging signs of a slowdown here particularly in terms of both crypto volume as well as equity volumes. yeah. And investors just need to be mindful of that as they start to embrace some of the meme mania that's taking place.
5: Well, Steve, that, that's what I'm hoping that you can help us sort through, because the way I look at it, Robinhood's interest versus uh, you know, its customers, or maybe I should say the, the retail traders on the platform's interest is this. Robinhood makes money when retail investors trade frequently and use options and margin. Right. But uh, I think historical data shows us that retail investors tend to lose money when they trade frequently and and use, uh, you know, more risky um, strategies like that. So what to make of that perhaps misalignment between the incentives of Robinhood versus the traders on the platform? And how does that end up playing out in the stock, depending on how Robinhood pushes its strategy from here?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. And we actually did include in our note today a section on ESG. And I think there is clearly an element where you look at Robinhood and the management team, like uh, Vlad and Baiju to their credit, right, I think are very well intended, right? They wanted to democratize finance. They wanted to lower barriers to entry. But they do benefit from increased churn, increased options trading, where the track record is a little bit spottier and engaging in some more complex trading strategies, right? That's ultimately going to drive more revenues on the platform. And there is some misalignment there. I think that's one of the mm-hmm. key risks that we actually outlined is the fact that you know they have good intentions, but at the same time, that doesn't seem to be the behaviors on the, of the folks on the platform are inconsistent with what the intentions are of the founders here.
3: Right. And Stephen, that misalignment, that current business model, that's what we're looking at right now. But that may not be something that, say, a Kathy Wood is looking at in the longer term. So what about that longer term proposition? The fact that Robinhood is bringing in a huge, young user base, introducing them to investing and they hope other financial products down the road that could prove quite lucrative and maybe align those incentives a little better.
4: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very fair point And Look, I think that folks like Kathy and some of the more bullish fintech investors that we've spoken with, you know, are willing to, for lack of our term, dream the dream on the ability of a company that has a great track record of attracting young investors onto the platform and being able to monetize them better. The one stat that did worry us a little bit, but again, it's only one statistic, is that you do have some disclosure around ACATs, which is uh, account transfers. Um, that happened uh, from Robinhood to another broker. And the account sizes that left the Robinhood platform in the first quarter were $20,000. The average account size on the platform is 4,500. So that's called graduation risk. As you become more affluent, as your needs become a little bit more complex and you start to accumulate wealth, those appear to be the investors or clients that are attriting. So I do think that people need to be mindful of that you know, as we think about what, like what, what's really the bull case that Robinhood can deliver is the ability not just to add all these bells and whistles and deepen client engagement, but be able to retain those investors on the platform as they start to accumulate more wealth. Right. right. So it's just one data point that we have for that. We'll track that closely. But if they can actually retain those people on the platform, then I think we'll grow more comfortable underwriting some elements of that bull case.
1: Right. Uh, That is fascinating. Uh, A dynamic, I'm sure, management is uh, is well aware of. Uh, There's going to be a lot of behavioral uh, psychology at play with this name for sure. Stephen, interesting note. Appreciate it very much. Thank you.
4: No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
1: Consumer apps
5: may be uh, coming off the gas pedal a bit. Etsy and Roku plunging despite earnings beats on the top and bottom lines as investors worry about User growth, Etsy's third quarter revenue outlook falling below estimates. Uber notching half a billion in adjusted EBITDA loss. And Roku seeing a drop of one billion streaming hours since last quarter. This is a broader story in tech. The growth slowdown has hit all kinds of consumer apps. Look at the numbers we got from Amazon, Facebook, Pinterest, Netflix, Spotify. All uh, five reported disappointing usage numbers that hit the stocks hard after big runs up. Let's focus now on Etsy. Despite the third uh, quarter outlook that was kind of weak, Morgan Stanley today is catching the falling knife, upgrading Etsy. Well, we don't know if it's a knife yet. Uh, highlighting, quote, durable growth and its recent acquisitions. Joining us now with that call, Morgan Stanley analyst Lauren Schenk. Lauren, good to, good to see you. So, um Etsy is still up almost 40 percent over the past 12 months. And even though the comps are tough here, I wonder what it is that you see in Etsy that gives you confidence that this wasn't a flash in the pan. What happened uh, during the pandemic, but there's strength to come from here.
0: Yes, absolutely. So while net ads did turn negative during the quarter, which is something that investors were worried about, at the end of the day, Etsy still acquired nearly 40 million new buyers to the platform last year. That's one of the largest numbers we saw really across e-commerce broadly. And we do think Etsy has become more top of mind with consumers when they start thinking about that initial path to purchase, expanding the TAM, and ultimately just makes them more relevant um, in terms of the overall broader e-commerce ecosystem going forward. So while the tough compares are obviously weighing on near-term results, when you sort of look at what has happened from 2019 to today, we do think the the structural top line growth is more durable from here.
5: Beginning of the pandemic, Lauren, we saw a lot of Etsy uh, makers on the platform, a lot of the small shops making masks. And also, you know, for, Gosh, it's probably been two or three years now. Amazon handmade was supposed to be a thing that a lot of people worried would threaten Etsy, but it doesn't seem to have done that. So what is it about Etsy? What kind of resilience or innovation have they've shown that has allowed them to fend off a larger competitor?
0: So I think the face mask is a great example of how they've been able to pivot to really make sure that supply matches demand, right? They were one of the first people, or their sellers were one of the first people to really recognize that there was a desire for these products out there and there was a shortage of them available. And so the seller community really gathered together and and turned on a dime to start producing those items. We also think sort of the broader trend of customization and personalization is obviously very core to what Etsy does, and so ultimately, Um, When you're looking for that unique item that you want to give as a gift, Etsy is sort of the go-to place. And there's a lot of, you know, other platforms that do commodities extraordinarily well, but sort of that handmade, um, hand-touched product is, is really where Etsy excels.
6: Lauren, good morning.
3: It's Sierdra. It seems like both Etsy and Roku are making moves to sort of bring it beyond that pandemic play. Etsy with Depop and Roku with more original content and Quibi. Are you buying it, though, in the case of Etsy? Does bringing in Depop and that younger generation make the case that it can be more than this pandemic play?
0: So we do think the M&A strategy is, is compelling. We like that Management is focused on these more asset light peer peer-to-peer marketplaces that ultimately we think can scale faster and generate longer, uh, higher long-term margins than some of these more managed marketplace businesses. Um, ultimately, you know, they're also expanding their TAM. So while apparel is a very large category on Etsy, obviously resale apparel isn't something that they really traffic in today. And so they are sort of building this layer cake approach. If you think about the TAM opportunity over the next several years, with, with Depop, with Reverb about 12 months ago, with Elo 7 um, acquisition as well. And so ultimately, you know, the core Etsy marketplace will remain a very key focus for investors, but in aggregate, they are sort of building what management has, has characterized as this house of brands. And we think that could be an interesting strategy over the next several years.
1: I wonder uh, maybe you can tell us Lauren how how closely correlated they are to overall card spend uh, it's been a little bit noisy lately with some of the uh, interruptions in in flow regarding stimulus checks been savings rate has come down a bit but in aggregate is etsy closely correlated to the way people are spending overall
0: We do think they're they're tracking relatively similar to, similarly to what we're seeing broadly in e-commerce Um, Obviously, you know, we've heard from a number of other players this earnings season, two-year trends are seeing deceleration sequentially, and that's what Etsy put up last night, albeit just a little bit greater than um, investors were hoping. Um, But we do think that ultimately, as the world continues to reopen, um, as the anniversary stimulus, et cetera, Etsy will continue to see sort of two-year deceleration, um, which is broadly how we're thinking about e-commerce as well.
5: All right. Lauren, thank you. Uh, You know, some controversy around that name that's been doing so well. Thanks so much for having me.
1: We're going to turn our attention to the world of streaming this morning. Roku stock falling despite beating earnings expectations. Investors were disappointed by uh, viewing time falling a billion hours from Q1. And that could be part of a larger trend after Netflix's third quarter subs uh, outlook fell short of estimates in the past week, as you probably remember. However, there is hope for the future. They'd get an upgrade from Stevens. Uh, The firm predicts that all all linear TV ad spend will eventually shift to Internet-connected devices. Plus, the content spend is only moving up. South Park creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone inking a new $900 million deal with Viacom CBS. <laughs> Let's bring in Julia Borston. The Stevens note is interesting, Julia, as they go to overweight on Roku 475. Uh, but the South Park deal is a big, big deal for Viacom.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, there there are two different trends going on here. When we look at the results of Roku and the fact that despite beating on the top and bottom line is those user numbers that are weighing on the stock. To me, that says something very similar to what we heard from Netflix, which was there was a material pull forward because of the pandemic. There's no question the pandemic drew drove growth higher. And now we're seeing the results of that. But going forward, especially for Roku, the huge potential seems to be in advertising. That's where we're seeing massive growth in average reven- uh, average revenue per user, huge opportunity that's behind a lot of the analyst bullishness on the stock eyes. And it's interesting because that shows that maybe people aren't going to be wanting to spend on multiple additionals of subscription services. But the fact that Roku does have all this free content is an advantage. And in terms of the South Park things, guys, I mean, a second $900 million deal for premium content <laughs> really speaks to the fact the premium brands are in demand and there just aren't that many of them. So people will pay up. Yeah, um, and I know you've been all over that,
3: Julia. In terms of Roku moving into its own original content, how does that bolster
2: the advertising case? Well, look, I think that, you know, when you talk about content, the question is, what do you have that's exclusive? It was so interesting that Roku made that move to buy shows from Quibi. And then those Quibi shows got so much attention in terms of the Emmys showing that maybe and also on Roku showing that maybe it wasn't the problem with the actual shows themselves that could be failed, but just the format. So I think that we're going to see Roku increasingly look at investing in original content. But Roku also wants to be an open platform. Roku will succeed if all streaming succeeds. And Anthony Wood talked about that yesterday. He sounded an awful lot like Reed Hastings when he said he believed that streaming was going to continue to grow even with these bumps in the road. So I think that it has two potentials here. One is investing this original content, growing its advertising uh, revenue, and then also just being this open platform. So as the whole market grows, all, you know, rising tide lifts all boats and particularly lifts Roku.
5: Wow. Yeah. And on that South Park thing, I mean, $900 million, that'll buy a lot of cheesy poofs. It makes me wonder... what would happen if The Simpsons, right, were in play during this streaming era, because South Park's been going on for a long time. But uh, back to Roku, uh, and particularly on the hardware side, it was interesting to me that they noted that they expect the component issues to really be more difficult in the second half, which seems to also echo what Apple was saying about components in the second half. And I wonder, Julia, to what degree uh, investors, even who are looking at content and streaming, need to factor in Hardware bottlenecks at this point since the hardware is strategically positioned to drive uh, streaming adoption could that bottleneck follow through to streaming at some point.
2: Very good point, John. You know, we talk about Roku in terms of this growing ad business and the fact that they're this open platform for all of these different apps to access on your TV. But, yes, they do have a hardware component. And what was so notable this quarter is their margins declined for that hardware because their costs were going up and they didn't want to pass those costs along to consumers. And what they warned about is not only are those costs going to continue to be higher in the second half of the year, but they will continue to be higher into 2022. So the outlook there is not. Great in terms of the pressure on margins. And I do think that's going to continue to weigh on the stock. But John, we have to remember that you can now access the Roku channel and other places. And a lot of people already have Rokus and the company will benefit from those users, especially if they start watching more. We'll see what happens if there are more lockdowns, if people start spending more time at home. But this is not a company that necessarily needs to, you know, it, the only way it, it it's not like the only way this company generates revenue is from selling uh, the additional hardware. It does have that multiple revenue streams that sort of protects it a little bit from those higher costs. Right. that investors love to hear about Julia. Thanks so much for that. Meanwhile,
3: guys, take a look at shares of Fastly. They are cratering this morning. We're going to get to more on that. Plus, the better name to own between Uber and Lyft. And remember, NASDAQ at an all time high. More tech check next.
5: Gut check on cloud service provider Fastly, a big 2020 growth name. Uh, Shares tanking after reporting a revenue miss yesterday, lower third quarter and full year guidance. An outage in the second quarter weighing on the business. The stock is down 66 percent over 12 months. Shares today about 73 percent off the 52 week high. You can see there it's down about 16 and a half percent for the day so far. Dee?
3: Ouch. Let's get back to Uber. That stock has actually staged a huge turnaround, fell sharply after earnings, but now it's up about 5%. Our next guest says, though, that bookings grew 174%, but watch out for the potential for renewed lockdowns and the sharp impact COVID variants can have on ride volumes. Joining us now is Jeffrey, senior tech analyst Brent Thill. Brent, uh, what do you make of this turnaround? I mean, even gross bookings for the upcoming quarter at the lowest end is expected to be flat.
8: I think we're early in the turnaround, Deirdre. Yeah, this is like starting a cold engine on a car, right? It, it's been a, a long year. Drivers are coming back to work. We're all wanting to get out uh, beyond Zoom and and get out and explore the world. And I think in the back half of the year, there's going to be uh, a, a much stronger tailwind around mobility for both Uber and, and Lyft. And you're seeing it also in the booking.com numbers in Europe. So it's going to be slow. It's not going to be dramatic overnight. But I think they, they had to put the investments in that uh, caused some concern uh, with investors. These stocks have uh, really underperformed uh, other names like Facebook and, and Google. Uh, sentiment's probably the worst of all the Internet categories we cover. So you have low multiples. Both stocks are four times sales, which is super cheap. And you have a building demand environment that's going to be a a tailwind for for the industry going into the back half of the year. So uh, I think there's some uh, big skepticism around the business model long term. Can these companies make money and be profitable?
3: Yeah, I mean, their IPOs were two years ago, and both these names at the moment are currently trading below those IPO prices. Uh, I wonder, why did you just compare them to Google and Facebook? I mean, business model, very different margins, very, very different. And one of the focuses on both of those calls was the driver shortage. Lyft saying that it's going to have to continue to spend on incentives. Uber said that maybe it could pull back, although I wonder if they can deliver if Lyft is going to be spending more. Is this the new price wars? In ride sharing, it used to be the riders. Now it seems to be the drivers.
8: When you have a trillion dollar market, yeah, you can have two vendors survive in the U.S. And obviously, globally, Uber is going to do way better. Lyft's not even in international markets, so Uber's a broader platform, has more more engines of growth that they can turn on. Uh, so we think Uber's in a, in a great position uh, long term. Short term, Lyft is in a great position because they're focused on the U.S. And we don't believe that they have to kill each other on price. Uh, ultimately, price has been too high, right? Anyone that's pulled up a newer lift has realized that the rides are are, are too long to wait. The, the price seems way too high. Uh, that's going to come down and we're getting to more of an equilibrium. So, uh, you know, why we compare the, this to the rest of the group is that it's money flow, right? Our, our job is to help clients make money and ultimately, uh, one of the questions has been, you know, Google and Facebook and, and Snap have massive performance, like, where should I go now? We think some of these names are cheap enough to put some money to work.
1: That's interesting. Uh, you know, Brent, there's been some discussion this morning about sort of how the investment cycles between Uber and Lyft have not coincided. They haven't exactly happened at the same time. And I wonder if that uh, disparity leads you to one name over the other, at least in the near term.
8: Uber, long term, for sure platforms win and tech, point solutions die. I'm not saying Lyft's a point solution, but they are focused on the U.S. Uber has incredible engines of growth. And when you're a pilot, you want multiple engines, right? So if we go back into another lockdown and pandemic and we see another flare in the virus this fall, uh, they can go back to the, the Eats business. They can go to transporti- uh, uh, tr- uh, logistics. They can go to other parts of their business. They, they have a global business. So again, I think long-term Uber's in a better position as a business. There's no question. This looks like a platform. And again, if you look at the tech history, right, Microsoft, you go through the list, platforms win. Uber's a platform.
3: Brent, I know some who may argue the opposite, saying that focus that Lyft has shown at least allowed them to get to adjusted EBITDA profitability sooner. And he has a conversation to be continued. Brent Thill, (laughs) thanks very much for being with us.
8: Thanks.
5: Well, we will have a Robin Hood Bear next, plus, how AMD and Snap factor into the meme trade. Stay with us.
7: Canva presents Unexplained Appearances.
1: Resetting near the bottom of the hour here. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. Julia's got Warner Brothers chair and CEO Aaron Sarnoff in just a moment. But first, let's get a news update with Dominic Chu. Hey, Dom.
9: All right, good morning, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. A small decline in jobless claims last week, but the 385,000 new applications for unemployment benefits is still high by historical standards. However, continuing claims fell to another pandemic-era low. The U.S. trade deficit jumped nearly 7% in June to more than $75 billion. That's a new all-time high, by the way. Exports did rise slightly, but imports grew nine times as quickly. Insurance giant Cigna falling about 13% in trading so far. Its second quarter results top forecast, but the company doubled this year's expected profit impact. From COVID-19, Cigna also gave full-year earnings guidance that was below analyst consensus estimates. And Spirit Airlines is canceling about 400 more flights today, about half of its schedule. This according to air travel tracking site FlightAware. Spirit is now in its fifth day of heavy flight disruptions that have stranded customers across the country. Since the weekend, Spirit has canceled around 1,700 flights, Carl. So those disruptions continue, the bumpy road back from travel still lingers. Back over to you. Yeah.
1: Uh, what a story, Don Thank you very much, Dominic Chu. Let's get back to stocks. Our next guest says the market has entered a key negotiation phase, warning that some major tech companies like Amazon and AMD may struggle to sustain their fresh record highs as the broader market sees more volatility. Ties it all back to the dramatic move we've seen in Robinhood just this week. Uh, Sven Henrich, uh, founder and lead market strategist of Northman Trader, joins us this morning. Sven, it's good to see you. You're kind of taking a, a bit of a 30,000-foot view here in terms of the ranges we've settled in and some of the unanswered questions that I assume you think are going to get answered at some point.
10: Yeah, it's interesting. When you look at the market, obviously, we have the S&P and the Nasdaq continue to make all high, all-time highs every single month, along with the Fed balance sheet. In the meantime, underneath, though, we have a lot of rotation going on, and we have indices and individual stocks that are just basically sitting in multi-month ranges. Take the small caps. Russell, for example, hasn't gone anywhere in six months. We see it with companies like Amazon. Uh, Amazon was just in in a multi-month range. Broke out for a few weeks, and now on the heels of the earnings report, we went right back down. So I think this is where we are. We've we've obviously reached a point of peak recovery growth here. And now the market's kind of negotiating and seeing, okay, are we going to get more liquidity or substantiating growth? Or is inflation, for example, starting to curve in on the margins? We saw that with some of the big cap tech companies. They have been warning of slower growth, i.e. Facebook, i.e. Amazon.
1: Right. Um, I guess, how does this all tie to Robinhood? Explain that.
10: Well, Robinhood to me is just an, an expression of kind of a little bit of the gamification casino atmosphere we've, we've had all year long, like uh, along with AMC and certainly GME, and GameStop, right? And the casino, you always go to the hottest table. I mean, the retail investors, we have Wall Street Bets and others, have certainly uh, taken advantage of being able to run up stocks, and to the extent that you see, people trying to short them or funds trying to short them they make themselves easy prey we saw that just now with uh, AMD as well it had a multi week big heads and shoulders pattern which is kind of your classical technical warning sign uh, but that got run right over so to the extent that everything is gamified in terms of positioning uh, you can get moves that are that extreme
5: so and, and that, that's what kind of concerns me. You mentioned GameStop and AMC. Those were two stocks that were in this depressed state, very, very heavily shorted. Uh, But is what we're seeing even affecting uh, AMD now because retail traders are using options and margin uh, at a rate that they have not historically and uh, kind of do some CSI for us? Are you able to see kind of the mechanics that might be driving this I'm concerned because I mean AMD has been doing great already. I think a, a lot of investors who watch CNBC understand the bull case there. It's not like it was a depressed asset.
10: No, not at all. I mean AMD has a has a fundamental story to back up and the fantastic revenue growth and, and so forth. It's certainly benefiting also from the chip shortages situation that is going on. So it gives them pricing power. Uh, the the exacerbation in the moves that we see in some of these stocks. Is, is simply also a reflection of, well, in a time period of seeing the most intense dip buying uh, in in markets in history, <laughs> no one's even waiting for a two three percent dip. I mean, it's just almost panic buying, and that is all related, in my view, from record retail inflows. I mean, the the value. I, mean, I think what's fascinating, most fascinating to me, is that everybody's valuation insensitive, meaning none of these runs have anything to do with fundamentals. Ultimately, I mean, the valuations become. Incredible. We talked about this last time I was on with, with you know price to sales on on tech or on S and P record levels, and and the question always becomes fundamentally fundamentally driven. While currently fundamentals don't seem to be matter, or everybody has rosy eyed glasses on them because we we have this big peak growth recovery going on, what is on the other side. And then ultimately when you when you see people chasing valuations, as we saw with with AMC and GME, then these stocks come back down, a lot of people get hurt. So right. it's you know, it's all fun and giggles on the way up.
3: Right. As one uh, guest a few weeks ago argued, you have to think about valuations perhaps creatively these days. But Sven, I wonder, uh, what would you tell retail investors that are trading Robinhood like a meme stock? They're not exactly buying from hedge funds, but they are lining the pockets of venture capitalists who really sold this company on its longer term prospects Does or should the Reddit crowd realize this? Should they care? Or have we moved beyond that sort of dynamic that characterized GameStop and AMC earlier this year?
10: Yeah, I I don't think any, frankly, I'm just speculating here myself in terms of uh, the, 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 I can't speculate for what, or pretend to think what people on, on Wall Street bets are thinking. Uh, I think mostly it's from my perspective, gamified, it's not ultimately about valuations or if you believe in in a story, then that's fine. But, you know, we're talking about a stock that's been trading for just for a few days. I always say, you know, watch what they do, not what they say. And what what they are doing is the insiders are getting out hurriedly filing, obviously, today, taking advantage of the strength in the stock. And maybe that's something investors should be aware of in terms of the supply demand issues. Yes, you can run a stock high if you overwhelm it with buy orders. Uh, The question is what comes on the other end. And the insiders that may have had certain expectations about growth in the company for uh, a longer period or time horizon, when, when they hurriedly want to sell out, maybe that sends a message in itself.
1: Ah, we'll see. We'll have the jobs number tomorrow as well. Uh, maybe can tell us whether or not uh, the bond market is sniffing something out effectively or not. Uh, Sven, always good stuff. Great to see you. Thanks.
10: Thanks, Carl. Glad to be with you.
1: And Hollywood
5: is in flux as more movies go direct to consumer. We will see it again this weekend with The Suicide Squad. Warner Brothers is the studio behind that release. Chairman and CEO Anne Sarnoff is going to talk about that and the Disney Scarlett Johansson lawsuit up next on Tech Check. Warner Brothers chairman and CEO Anne Sarnoff waiting into the conflict between streamers and stars. Julia Borson sat down with her last night in an exclusive. Julia, um, fantastic timing once again on this. Uh, is DC going to handle this differently than Marvel?
2: Well, look, there's a lot riding on the decisions of Anne Sarnoff. She's CEO and chair of Warner Media Studios and Networks. And she made the controversial decision, remember, last December to simultaneously distribute the studio's 18 films through the end of this year in theaters and on HBO Max for no additional cost. She also made the decision to spend $200 million to compensate talent for lost bonuses tied to the box office now of course that looks prescient considering that disney is facing a lawsuit from scarlett johansson for failing to compensate her for potentially cannibalized box office due to her movie also going on disney plus now ahead of the suicide squad opening in theaters today i joined sarnoff on the warner brothers lot that film is projected to gross as much as 70 million dollars globally despite the fact that it's free to watch for HBO Max subscribers at home. This film is seen as another test of the health of the movie-going business.
11: We're very optimistic that it's gonna do well in theaters and on HBO Max. We've seen over the last eight months that the the movies have done very well and and there was very little competition earlier in the year um, because a lot of our competitors were pushing their releases further ahead in the year. Which is one of the reasons, as as when I spoke to you, we wanted to have a hybrid strategy so that we could afford to release the movies in the middle of what was then a very very. Um spiky pandemic, so we were able to have an alternative way to distribute so that people who couldn't get to the movie theaters or didn't want to go to movie theaters could watch it in their homes. And we've been really, really
2: happy with the results so far. But now that 85% of theaters in the U.S. are open, how much do you think offering the film at home is cannibalizing ticket sales?
11: Giving people the choice to go both places. I think you'll find that um, when you look at the overall box office. Some people are just choosing not to go, even with movies that are only in theaters. I think that one of the reasons we did the talent deals that we did was to be able to give them fair compensation if there was cannibalization of the theatrical window in the box office that they would also be paid for the streaming element of it. So, um, and then the good news about the strategy is we were able to have a full-blown global theatrical release for all of those 18 movies plus the 31 days on HBO Max. So one of the critical things that I think the talent and the agents were very happy with was that we gave each movie a big shot at success because we didn't um, cut back on the on the marketing spend and the global theatrical release of the movies, which is very hard to do in a pandemic.
2: So Scarlett Johansson just sued Disney, uh, alleging that Disney is not only breaking her contract by, by putting uh, Black Widow... To, not exclusively in theaters, but simultaneously Mm -hmm. on Disney Plus. But she's also saying that Disney right now is more interested in driving subscriber growth than it is in the box office. And that fundamentally, the interests of the studio or the media giant are just not going to be aligned with talent going forward. What do you make of that argument? Do you think she's right?
11: I'm not going to judge Scarlett's um, strategy, but I will say for us, uh, we both are very important to us. Our, of course, streaming HBO Max has been a big priority of ours. We're so happy with the growth 10 million year over year. We added 2.8 million subs in the in the second quarter in the U.S. and have exceeded 2.5 million in the last three quarters. So it's, it's really on a, on a great roll. Uh, but the theatrical business is very important for us as well. It, it really puts a lot of jet fuel in the sequence of of windows and so and we know that the talent wants to see the movies on the big screen so we want to come up with um the right kind of balance as we were just talking about in the structure of our deals so that the talent feels fairly compensated and importantly we're very transparent about what our strategy is going forward
2: interesting to hear her talk about balancing the distribution in theaters and on streaming and managing the demands of talent. Now, another key part of Sarnoff's strategy is making more content for HBO Max, as well as making more content to sell to other platforms. It did produce Apple's Ted Lasso and some shows for Netflix, and it has a total of 400 productions underway in the U.S. right now and 25 films in post-productions. Now, as for WarnerMedia's pending merger with Discovery, Sarnoff says she doesn't think it'll change her content business. John? You uh, can find my entire interview with Sarnoff on cnbccom techtech
5: Definitely, definitely want to check that out. I wonder in the sort of Warner versus Disney, and you know, I guess in a way, ScarJo versus Margot Robbie here. To what degree is Disney a victim of its own box office success in the sense that the back end of a Marvel film is going to be potentially worth a lot more than the back end of a DC film, and so you know, the, the actors expect more.
2: Well, look, I think, John, in this day and age, not necessarily. If you look at the box office of Black Widow, I mean, it was the biggest movie released so far this year, but it's still unclear what the total box office numbers are going to be. I think that the difference here we're seeing between Disney and, uh, and Warner Brothers with Marvel versus DC Comics is the strategy they took going into it. Because Disney was selling Black Widow for an additional $30 and Warner Brothers was giving away its movies to um, HBO Max subscribers, there was no upside for Warner Brothers to give to their talent based on how many people watched say, Wonder Woman 1984, people were subscribers, they weren't, they couldn't give them a percentage of that. Disney, because they could give a percent of the $30 fee people were paying to watch Black Widow at home, they could say, we're going to give you a percent of that and we'll figure out the additional box office bonus later. So it's just two different strategies in terms of the distribution and also in how they're dealing with talent. But remember, John, the other really interesting thing to watch is that Warner Brothers has said they're going to be putting their films starting next year in 2022, giving them an exclusive theatrical window. That window will be shorter, but that also Mm -hmm. means that that's a whole different way to calculate their deals with talent than what they did this year. Right, it'll be fascinating to uh, watch that play out
3: to this whole evolution. Julia, thank you. Take a look at shares of Western Digital making a comeback this morning after strong results. Plus, Wayfair surges on a huge profit beat. More on those movers at CNBC.com. We are back in just a moment.
1: still to come why the CEO of Coinbase is arguing against the infrastructure bill and could actually get his way. A debate about crypto regulation is next as the Dow session high up 200 knocking on the door of 35 K.
3: Companies from Square to Coinbase are fighting back against the Senate's definition of crypto brokers in a battle that could have wide ranging repercussions for President Biden's infrastructure plan. Kate Rooney back at One Market with us to discuss and wide ranging implications for the crypto ecosystem. Yeah,
6: the entire industry is kind of up in arms about this. We had Brian Armstrong tweeting about it. There were hundreds of crypto companies that wrote a letter supporting one of these amendments. So the idea here is that this goes beyond what would happen for a normal broker. They're saying that The crypto industry not all of them are brokers we have coinbase and companies you know binance who are trading companies who need to report taxes to the irs they say we are completely okay with that brian armstrong sort of had a a tweet storm yesterday describing this saying 1099s are cool we're good with that but other companies that you know crypto miners shouldn't have to report certain information to the irs they say it's going to choke innovation stifle innovation here which has been the argument of the crypto industry Going back to Libra, they've said, you know, if you guys clamp down too hard, innovation goes elsewhere. It's open source and on the Internet. Look at
3: what happened to Libra and then DM. And someone was making this analogy to me yesterday. I was on a World Economic Forum panel talking about DeFi. And one of the panelists said that the Internet pointed to the Internet and said that if it was too regulated too early on, it wouldn't have developed. But on the flip side of that... (laughs) Regulating later when these industries have become so large is also a really difficult proposition.
6: Absolutely. And the Libra example, they did clamp down. And there seems to be, it's all about semantics. So this is such a new industry. I was talking to Senator Lummis, actually, who supported this amendment. And she said the rest of the Senate doesn't necessarily understand the industry, let alone what a word like broker would mean for the. So it's so subtle. And I think there are a couple senators. We're sort of paving the way as crypto friendly and states that are going in that direction. And that's, that's a challenge, challenge
3: right? There's a wide sort of understanding, levels of understanding. Absolutely. Okay, thanks for being with us. Uh, Tech Tech, we'll go to a quick break. We'll be back in a moment.
5: One more thing. Watch shares of auto tech company Viennear. You can see them there, up 24%. Uh, Qualcomm offering to buy the company for 4.6 billion dollars, or 37 bucks a share, muscling in on a rival bid by Magna International announced last month. Qualcomm's offer is a billion dollars higher. Qualcomm really after Arriver software, which it has been working on with Viennear. New Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon uh, leaning into life beyond the smartphone, which is the earnings growth story he told us about a week ago,
1: Carl. All right, John, one thing we have not yet mentioned is this White House meeting with the maker of EVs. Phil LeBeau's got more on that. Hey, Phil.
4: Hey, Carl, let's quickly run down what the president will announce today. The goal for the U.S., according to the president, 50 percent. EV plug in hybrid electric sales or fuel cell sales, 50% of the market by 2030. Here's where we are right now. Last year, just under 300,000 pure electric vehicles made up total sales in this country. That's about 2% of all the sales. And most believe we're only going to get to about a million of these being sold by 2025. That's pure electric. So we're a long ways from 50%. Take a look at the big three auto stocks. They've all moved higher on their EV commitments this year. You'll see the executives at the White House today. What about Tesla? Unclear if Tesla is going to be there. Remember, Tesla is the market leader in terms of EV sales in this country, selling, uh, what, 145,000 in the first seven months of this year. Guys, back to you.
1: Yeah, and Walter Isaacson working on a new biography. Thanks, Phil. You've
2: been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.
7: Life is a highway.